This is Dr. Frank Leon Roberts. And my name is Aldo B. Martin, and this is Finding James Baldwin. The year is 1942. Music helps to shape our memories and our recollections of past events. So hearing the song, The Jitterbug Waltz by Fats Waller, who by the way, used to go to Clinton High School, might take the listener back to the year 1942. However, as music and entertainment continued to be transmitted over the radio and into the ears of Americans, a new source of information emerged. As the U.S. plunged into the Second World War, a new radio program called The Voice of America came on air as a direct response to the Nazi propaganda that had spread over the past couple of years. This program helped to make Americans aware of the events and battles that took place overseas. Now, as the war efforts continued, there were other battles being fought in the United States. In Clark County, Mississippi, two teenagers were hanged for being accused of raping a young woman. Ernest Green, 14 years old, and Charlie Lang, 15 years old, were both lynched, despite no proof of the alleged crime. The site of the lynching was on a bridge that runs across the Chickasaway River. The residents of Clark County, Mississippi, dubbed this bridge as the Hanging Bridge, as it was the site of lynchings in years past and in years to come. It is within this national backdrop that James Baldwin gives us his 14th entry into the Magpie. All right, so Frank, we're about to listen to another one of uh, Young Baldwin's poems. And forgive me, I cannot say it like that. I can't. The word is just beneath this now. I need to channel our friend. Miss Angelou. Yes. Um, okay. This is another another poem. Okay. <laughs> I hope the audience doesn't get tired of that because no, no, I'm no, not no, tired no, no. of it. Stretch that vowel. <laughs> Poem. There we go. There we go. Right? So, <laughs> so this is another poem written by uh, 17-year-old James Baldwin. Right? And this is really going to get into more of a theme of religiosity and sort of a precursor to the civil rights movement. But what are your thoughts on this poem? Um, listeners are in for so much of a treat because we see... Uh, at least four recurring themes that we'll talk about after the jump um, that are at work here in Black Girls Shouting that later become touchstones 
for Baldwin's literature. But this is, I love this poem because it's bringing us back to the winter of 1942. Baldwin is a very recent graduate of Dewey Clinton at that time, and he's serving as a guest editor of the Magpie. And Oh, uh, no, he's editor-in-chief at this point. And so the poem um, is special for all those reasons, which we'll discuss after we hear it. girl shouting stump my feet and clap my hands angels coming to these fair lands cut my lover off of that tree angels coming to set me free glory glory to the lamb blessed jesus where's my man black girl whirl your torn red dress black girl hide your bitterness black girl stretch your mouth so wide none will guess the way he died Turned your heart to quivering mud While your lover's soft red blood Stained the scowling outraged tree Angels come to cut him free What I don't like about the poetry is that it's short, mm. <laughs> but that's that's poems, right? Yeah. So I, I wish he would have written more short stories, but that's just me speaking from a selfish standpoint. But for me, there was just so much in there. It for me, it was the religious theme that stood out mm-hmm. to me. But you you said before we uh, we listened to it, you mentioned there were some touchstones there that we would hear later on in Baldwin's themes. Yeah, as as a writer. Yeah, I think what's important about this poem from a literary perspective in terms of the makings of James Baldwin is how we see in this short verse poem how Baldwin is rehearsing or working through what will become four touchstone uh, themes in his later work. The first is his attention to black musicality, right? That this this. There's something about the rhythm of black girl shouting, black girl dot 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 dot. The 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 um to use a literary word, the um iambic pentameter uh, of the poem, right? Has the, a certain the, the what? The iambic pentameter. Which, what does that mean? Which is <laughs> which is a uh simply a fancy literary term to describe the rhythm of poetry, right? The poetry okay. that has a certain rhyme scheme. Um and this the pentameter of this poem is very bluesy it's a it's a very it has a very black sound to it right which becomes in later baldwin a touchstone of baldwin's work as a writer his ability to kind of replicate and approximate black music in the literature we see that with black girl shouting we also see uh what i think you were really holding on to brother aldo this attention to religion and religious questioning, you know, this question of ah. blessed Jesus, where's my man, right? The black subject asking God, are you a God of justice? 
that becomes such a touchstone for Baldwin. We also see um, uh, this engagement with black women, that this poem is telling the story of black suffering um, through the eyes and perspective of a black woman. And there's something important about that. And then lastly, his ability in this poem to think about black suffering, black pain. Can, can, can we stop there? The suffering component. Obviously, in this story, there's a man who's been hanged. Yeah. And, and that is a suffering all of its own. I, I can't imagine what kind of a death that would be, right? Or even the lead up to, to such, mm-hmm. right? And it's, and I mean this respectfully, it's temporary. It's temporary because for the one who's suffering that, in, in due time, it's over. But here in the story, the black girl that's shouting, that's a suffering she's going to have for the rest of her life. And I'm not trying to say one is worse than the other. I'm just saying they're, they're different. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what young Baldwin highlights here. I don't know if that was his intention, but that's what stands out to me. A- yeah. am, I, am I far off? Am I bugging? No, but no, you're not bugging at all. But also, I mean, so and right. It's not just about the suffering, right? That Baldwin is also telling the story of this black girl who's dancing, right? And so we get lines like, black girl, whirl, your tom red dress, black girl, hide your bitterness. So we almost hear traces of that great early poet, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, we wear the mask that bends and break, right? Like Baldwin is talking about, what does it mean when you look at black people who are in these moments of jubilee? how there's a suffering behind that, right? So this ability to look at the praise and worship of these churchgoers and saying, I'm actually going to tell you the story of what's going on behind that shouting is so Baldwinian. Yes. Or it will become Baldwinian. And here we see the makings of that. Baldwin is working with it through his adolescent mind in this poem, right? Because is this a poem about suffering? Yeah, but it's also a poem about what? stomping my feet and clapping my hands right so it's something baldwin is telling us something about black performance and how much pain often goes into these ecstatic performances by black people all that is making me think about the two interpretations that i had about this poem yeah and its connection to american history Mm. first of all the religious theme is what stands out here now we've said this time and time again and Baldwin is 17 years old at the time that this was published. So he leaves the church himself when he is about 17 years old. Oh, yeah. So throughout his entire high school career, as it will, he's struggling with losing his religion. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the REM song, mm-hmm. but not really. Right, right, but right. that's right. what it makes me think about. Right. And so I think he, in times, as he's done before, he kind of pens that struggle in these poems. So when he's talking about, I think he's talking about, uh, it seems to suggest that his breakup with the church is not a clean break. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it's almost as if what the poem is telling me, what the writer is telling me is that this guy, this guy died. This guy was lynched. This guy was tortured, but religion couldn't save him. Yeah. And now you have this black girl shouting. Shouting where? Shouting in the church. You would think that it's shouting out of rage, out of anguish, but it's shouting in the church. And like you said before, the shouting might be masked 
right? It's 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 performing with this mask of the, the, you. One might think that the shouting is in religious reference, but the shouting could also be in a humanistic rage. Mm-hmm. Am I mm-hmm. making sense? Absolutely. You know, and as Amiri Baraka famously said, Baldwin left the church, but the church never left him. Yeah. And so we see we see the church in Baldwin. Um, in all of his writings and we see the church in Baldwin here in this poem because it's important to remind ourselves that even though this is a poem where you have this 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 nameless black girl subject asking a god where are you where's my man the poem ends with angels come to cut him free which is to say it ends with hope it ends actually with the return to religion right like the idea that angels are coming is this very black thing of saying like, you know, the savior's still coming, somebody's still coming. It's not a complete letting go. So it's like Baldwin is doing this thing, which he will always later do, back to our point about how these poems reveal the makings of a journey. Baldwin is on the one hand being critical of religion, but yet he's not, it would be, I think, um, unfair to say that he's completely stepping outside of it. He ends the poem with, more religious rhetoric. Man, you know, I didn't see it that way. I saw it when he said, set me uh, set me free. Mm-hmm. I thought she was kind of referring to the funeral. Here, okay. Here's what I mean. Here's okay. what I mean. Because okay. so the man's on the tree and, you know, they, they cut him down to put him where? Into the casket. Because mm-hmm. this, is, this is in preparation for a funeral, right? That's what this is, right? Everyone's in preparation for a funeral church service. And... I think she was the one who was being set free, the black girl that was shouting. Okay. When I think about funerals, funerals are for the living. Absolutely. Right? They're, they're, not, they're not for the dead. Funerals are, for, are an opportunity for the living to get some sort of closure, for the living to somehow feel a little bit better, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not saying that to disparage a funeral or anything like that, but I just think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in him, in in in. in in cutting him off of that tree and then putting him in the casket, that's a way of setting her free. <sighs> you know, it sounded a lot better when I wrote it. No, no, no. I think that's, well, the thing about poetry, like all literature, um, and here we go back to Barth's, uh, Roland Barth's The Death of the Author is the Birth of the Reader, that one of the things that poetry allows us to do is open ourselves up to multiple interpretations. So your reading is your reading, right? It is, it, it is, it is 100% valid because it is your interpretation of the poem. Yeah. And part of the work of a great poet is actually to give readers so much imagery that it allows us to go on our own creative journey. You give know? them space. Yeah, because yeah. when I read this, I'm actually not reading this as a funeral poem. I'm reading this as a reference literally to black girls shouting and shouting it as this as this term that has so many meanings in the black community, it refers to a kind of religious experience or religious performance. It also refers to play, black girls playing. And so I'm, when I hear that those words and I, and I hear sentences like stomp my feet and clap my hands, angels come into these fair lands. I think about what's going on, not in the funeral, but what's going on on church and Sunday, what's going on. Um, and so many different spaces. So that so, which is all to say, the poem can be all of these things at once. It can, and it, it speaks can. to the larger point about how even this seventeen-year-old is providing us with these early works that 
allow us to go on our own creative journey? I, I certainly wasn't a journey able, of interpretation. I, I certainly wasn't able to do that at 17 years old. Yeah. Nor am I able to do it at 45. Years hey, old. there I'll, we go. I'll tell you there that we go. much. But Likewise. The part when he says, when she's told to hide her bitterness, that stood out to me also. Yes. And she's told to stretch her mouth out wide and to hide how he died. And, and it makes me thinking about singing and, and, and church songs and singing songs of sorrow. Yeah. And how the black church has a history of hiding messages and songs. Absolutely. You know, even going back to slavery days. That's right. right. Wade in the water and all these other types of songs. And that's what I'm getting at here. What is behind the shouting? Like, yeah. to me, this is a poem about what is behind the shouting, right? But it's also a poem that speaks to Baldwin's uh, intimate relationship with black women and black female experiences, right? When I think about James Baldwin and black women... I think about there were at least there were many more, but there were at least five black women who played a key role in shaping Baldwin's creative imagination. Who would they be? Well, the first is his mother. Right. Beardish Jones, who becomes Beardish Baldwin, uh, who who is the only person buried next to him. That's right. That's right. And you. So tell us about quick oh, tangential nah, nah, side. Nah, note. you nah. can't tell us about the visit. No, nah, not yet, man. That's. That's an episode That's by for, itself. Okay. All we will say to our listeners is there was a visit. Uh, <laughs> there was there was an ancestral visit that Brother Aldo took, an important pilg pilgrimage. But no, so Beardish, his mother, um, was Baldwin's first savior. In that, you know, we all know um, that Baldwin had a very contentious relationship to his stepfather, who was raised as his father. Um, but his mother really saved his life in that she. Um, she allowed she gave him permission to be soft. Yep. She gave him permission to be an artist. Yep. She gave him a per permission to gave him permission to make mistakes and she gave him permission to grow. And so she was really influential. And there's actually a great book by sister um, Anna Malika Tubbs called The Three Mothers. Okay. How the mothers of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped the nation. Oh wow. And there's a great chapter on Beardis Baldwin that talks about Right the role now. she played in shaping James Baldwin's man. Uh, I wonder if we should include that in the in the uh, episode link. Yes, let's do that. Let's make sure that's in our our, our episode bibliography, which we have with each of these episodes. Yeah. But then after um, Mama Baldwin, then I think about Lorraine Hansberry. Ah, we talked about is that Raising in the Sun? Raising in the Sun, nineteen fifty five. We talk about um, uh, those Greenwich Village years. Uh, those Greenwich Village years uh, is, is what led to Baldwin's encounter with this black radical woman from the south side of Chicago um, who was like Martin Luther King from a bourgeois background. Daddy was a landlord, property owner. Um, but this was a woman who really had a profound imp uh, influence on Baldwin. You, you said from Chicago and from a Lorraine bourgeois background? Yeah, Lorraine Hansberry was from was from uh well she sounds like laura from family matters yeah she <laughs> and so shout out to amani perry want to read sister amani perry's beautiful book um looking for lorraine but uh yeah lorraine hansberry came from a very affluent family in chicago affluent father in particular but the point is in terms of baldwin it was really this black woman who was baldwin's first example of what it meant to be an unapologetic black artist intellectual Right. Not just an artist, but also an intellectual and to see your art as a form okay. of 
intellectual production, right? And so Lorraine Hansberry, particularly a raisin in the sun, but just her whole life had this profound influence on on. And she's one of the she's one of the five. She's one of the five. She's number two. Who's the third? Number three is going to be it's actually a three four combo. Is Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith. Like, you can't think about James Baldwin without thinking about Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith. I Why mean, is that? He says that um, really Bessie Smith and, J- and, and Billie Holiday is, are, the, are the figures who... Now, he didn't know Bessie Smith and Billie Holiday the way that he obviously knew his mother and he knew Lorraine Hansberry. But he was inspired by them. He said that they really helped him to write Go Tell It on the Mountain. That there was something about the blackness of their sound that reminded him of black America. And he also said that he wanted to write the way that Billie Holiday sounded. Ooh. Right? And that and we can and we can hear the Billy in Baldwin. Wow. When we read Sonny's Blues. I mean, yeah. what is Sonny other than a kind of male manifestation of Billie Holiday? Oh, right now. Right? right. Um, but then also we hear the Bessie Smith in the blue sensibility of Baldwin's writings. Even in this poem, we hear the Bessie Smith, the attention to suffering, sadness, but not being overcome by it. So there we have these four women. And then lastly, Josephine Baker, man. Josephine Baker. Which people don't know. Josephine Baker. I didn't know you were going to go there. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, because I could easily also have gone in the direction of Nina Simone. That's where I thought you were going. Um, Nina, Nina. But Nina's almost too easy. We all know uh, that relationship between Nina and Baldwin. We all have seen that, that those pictures of Baldwin and Nina smiling. They had this really fun relationship. And also... If you go to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture into the James Baldwin collection, there are these great letters where, I mean, if you read the letters, man, we got to get some of these letters on the air. It's like Nina, the way she's writing to him, it's so beautiful. She's almost, she's, it's almost like she's crooning to a lover. She's saying things like, Jimmy, write back to me. I miss you. But she's not the one you're mentioning. But she's not. The one I'm missing is, mentioning is Josephine Baker. Wow. Who, James Baldwin, the last piece of writing that James Baldwin committed to, that is still to this day unpublished, um, is a play called The Welcome Table, which was essentially a dramaturgical um, reimagining of his life in the south of France, um, where he lo- where he where he lived in, in Saint Paul. Um, and Josephine Baker is one of the characters. There's a Josephine Baker character in this play, The Welcome Table. And Josephine Baker, in Baldwin's later years, that final critical stage of his life from about 77 to 87, uh, Josephine um, had an influence on him. She was in, in Josephine, Baldwin saw another black person who was abroad in France doing their thing, but who was also completely free. So those five women, Beatrice Baldwin, his mother, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, his dear early friend, um, Billy Holiday and Bessie Smith, who he tries to do in words what they do in sound. And then Josephine Baker as this audacious embodiment of black freedom are four women who had a profound impact on Baldwin um, as a thinker and as a writer. That's marvelous, man. That's, that's, that's marvelous. And he's writing this in an all boys school. Right. Right. So it's not like he's walking around with uh that's right with uh he with, didn't see tanisha on the corner and uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh do it in english in, class in english, he didn't right, see it in right, english right, class right, right. that's not no. what happened here that's not what happened here so he's still able to channel that at 17 years old i want to talk about the red dress yeah you mentioned the red dress before yeah and when i think about the red dress maybe i'm stretching it a bit but 
just before that that line, they speak about the lamb, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we know the lamb to be Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As we're talking mm-hmm. religious references. And, and what is it that saves Christians? It's the blood of the lamb, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Covered mm-hmm. in the blood of the lamb. The blood of Jesus is what saves people. I'm wondering if he purposely added the red dress after that and how the red dress was torn mm-hmm. and how the red dress is used as a covering. Because you think about a red dress, a red dress is fun. That's right. Signifies a good time. That's right. Right? But I'm wondering if he's using that as, as, a, as, as a way to, to hide pain. Mm. Right? I think, that that's, I think that that's a really smart reading. Um, oh! <laughs> oh, you're funny. Y'all bro. heard it here first. You're smart you're reading. Here, would that mean I would get like an A in your class? Brother, you are the class. You were teaching the class. <laughs> uh, you were the teacher and the subject of the class. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I remember one time I had an English class and I got a B plus on a paper. Yeah. And I was not happy. Uh-oh. And I remember I, I, I spoke with the professor after I waited for him. And he he was just surprised. Yeah. He was like, oh, wait, you're here to talk about this? Yeah. It's a B plus. You should... And then from there, we, we, we had a good time. It, was, it wasn't a bad conversation, but I just remember. Well, you were con- I, continuing just, that tradition. It just took me back to that moment. Erudite literary analysis. I'm so yeah. sorry. No, but also the red dress is important in terms of um, the visuality, right? Baldwin's early ability, again, this all being about what do we see in this early manifestation of Baldwin yeah. that we know will be developed later? Like, how is it that, which is to say, how is it that in attention to these early unpublished poems by Baldwin, tell us something about the makings of the man? Well, the red dress really does, I think, in some ways also speak to Baldwin's early capacity to invoke um, or to produce deeply evocative and provocative visual images so like you get a vision in your mind of a red dress, right? Like it's a very powerful image. And so Baldwin in his work is always uh, giving us these very powerful images, right? And so um, even the image of uh, the fire next time, the image of fire, right? Being this sort of fiery red-like image. And, and that's something you could feel too. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly, right. So the red dress, I think, also, all this is to say the red dress speaks to Baldwin's early sort of experimenting with visual imagery, how to incorporate vivacious visual imagery in literature. We see this young boy working through that with the image of the black girl in the red dress. Yeah. yeah.